Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 476, To Have My Deeds Known. Today, I want to tell a story about one of the most unique sources I've ever encountered and what we can learn from it about a complicated moment in Japanese history. The source in question is the Moko Shudai Ekotoba, roughly illustrated account of the Mongol invasion, which is, well, more or less what it says. There is an excellent translation out there in English, produced by Dr. Thomas Conlin, and if you're at all interested in the period, I highly recommend checking it out. So, first and foremost, we should probably refresh ourselves on the Mongol invasions of Japan. Sometime around 1162, a boy named Temujin was born to Yesuge, a chieftain of the Borjigin clan of Mongols, a nomadic people eking out an existence on the Eurasian steppe. Temujin's early life is not well documented. What we have comes from substantially later sources that are of dubious accuracy. We can be fairly certain, however, that by the 1190s, Temujin had succeeded in unifying most of the Mongol tribes under his leadership. Within the next few years, he defeated major rival steppe tribes in the form of the Tatars, Jurchins, and Naimans. As a result, in 1206, he was proclaimed Chinggis Khan, or anglicized Genghis Khan, roughly universal ruler, by his fellow Mongols. Most of us are, I imagine, familiar with what comes next. By the time the great Khan himself died in 1224, he already ruled over a massive empire forged by the military prowess of Mongol horsemen, and by his own carefully refined approaches to tactics and military organization. That empire stretched from northern China well into Central Asia, and his forces had already begun raiding places further afield. The empire would reach its zenith under the fifth Khan, Kublai, who himself ruled from a new city called Khanbalik, or Dadu in Chinese, though it's better known today as Beijing. Ultimately, it was under Kublai's rule that the empire also began to come apart, as its sheer size, combined with the frequency of succession disputes, necessitated the division of the empire into four successor states, of which Kublai's chunk, the Yuan dynasty of imperial China, was the wealthiest. Those successor states would in turn either implode or be overthrown over the next 100-ish years, though surviving successor states would continue on for the next few centuries. But anyway, It's Kublai's rule we primarily have to concern ourselves with. 
Kublai saw himself as inheriting his grandfather Chinggis Khan's charge to bring the whole of the world under his rule. It was during Kublai's reign that the Mongol conquests of China, which took decades of hard fighting, were completed. He was also responsible for subjugating the rulers of the Goryeo dynasty, at the time the kings of Korea. And then, of course, he turned his attention to Japan. Japan at this time was governed by what I think it is fair to call one of the oddest geopolitical arrangements in both Japanese history and possibly ever. Nominally, of course, power rested in the hands of the emperor in his capital at Kyoto. At the time Kublai first began to threaten Japan in 1266 CE, that would be the 17-year-old Kameyama, who's come up before, he's one of many people Lady Nijo, the subject of episode 454, had an affair with. But of course, Kameyama didn't actually do that much governing, and not because he was too busy having affairs, but because for several centuries by this point, the emperors had been reduced to figureheads controlled by the aristocratic families of Kyoto. Young emperors were propped up either by aristocratic families like the Fujiwara, or by their own relatives, retired emperors who stepped down from the throne to call the shots behind the scenes. Except that by 1200, these people weren't calling the shots anymore, at least not fully. By about 1000 years ago, the warriors of the samurai class, first given independent fiefs and chartered to fight the Amishi natives of northern Japan, had begun to assert their own political independence against the Kyoto government. In the late 1100s, one of those warrior families, the Minamoto, had risen above all the others to become the unquestioned rulers of the samurai class. The Minamoto clan head, Minamoto no Yoritomo, was in turn able to force the Kyoto aristocracy to revive for him an ancient title, Sei Taishogun, or Supreme General for the Subduing of Barbarians, essentially the Commander-in-Chief of the Samurai class. Once upon a time used as a temporary title for those commanding forces against the Amishi, the position of Shogun would now empower the Minamoto family to act as the military governors of Japan. They were not the sole government, mind you, instead the new structure would be a parallel one. The old civilian government in Kyoto would continue to operate, appointing kokushi or provincial governors, for Japan's 60-odd provinces. Alongside these men would serve the shugo daimyo, military governors appointed by the shogun. The job of the shugo was to handle security affairs, banditry, keeping their fellow samurai in line, things like that, to operate alongside their civilian counterparts. In practice, the shugo were constantly pressing up against the authority of their kokushi civilian counterparts, and over the course of the next several centuries, would slowly undermine their authority, independence, and power. They never dispensed with the imperial system, in large part because the leading members of the warrior class traced their ancestry back to that same aristocracy, or in some cases the imperial court, and relied on it for their own legitimacy, but they were not always deferential to it either. Speaking of slow undermining, by the 1260s, the Minamoto clan was no longer calling the shots in their own new government, called the Kamakura Shogunate, after the city of Kamakura in remote eastern Honshu, where the Minamoto power base lay. In point of fact, the Minamoto clan itself no longer existed by the 1260s, 
it was wiped out by a combination of infighting and assassination among both its own members and its follower families. In its place had risen the Hojo clan, which had been one of the primary allies of the Minamoto during their rise to power. The Hojo, however, lacked the aristocratic pedigree to assume the title of Shogun themselves, and instead installed a series of young, and I do mean young, imperial princes as Shogun, while ruling themselves as the Shikken, or Shogun's regent. So in summary, we have a Shikken from the Hojo clan, ruling on behalf of a Shogun from the imperial family, ruling on behalf of the Kyoto aristocracy, ruling on behalf of the emperor. Politics can get pretty wild sometimes. Anyway, it was into this whole arrangement that Kublai Khan's first threats to Japan began to arrive. Starting in 1266, the Khan dispatched messages to Japan's rulers via Korean intermediaries, calling on Japan to submit to Mongol rule. The language, influenced by Kublai's interest in Chinese Confucianism, was couched in traditional pleasantries, asking the Japanese to send ambassadors to recognize Kublai's ascension to the Chinese imperial throne. However, the threat was very clear. Japan would have to accept status as a Mongol vassal state, much as other powers in East Asia had in the past accepted vassal status from China. If not, an invasion would be coming. The demand for submission was ignored, and in 1274, Lo, an invasion force was dispatched from Korea for Japan. Which brings us to the Moko Shurai Ekotoba, and to the man behind their creation, a samurai by the name of Takezaki Suenaga. Unfortunately, we know very little of Suenaga's origins or his life before the Mongol campaign. His date of birth is often given as 1246 CE because of a record from 1293 which describes him as being in the 48th year of his life by the traditional Japanese reckoning, where you're one at birth. We also know that he was a member of the warrior class from Higo province in western Kyushu, which is now more or less Kumamoto prefecture after the administrative reorganizations of the 1870s. Specifically, Takezaki was what's called a gokenin, a complicated but important term for members of the samurai class. The status of gokenin, roughly honorable man of a household, was one that first emerged in the final decade of the 1100s as part of the creation of the Kamakura Shogunate. Specifically, Gokenin status was handed out to those who openly pledged themselves to the Minamoto, or to their Shugo Daimyo representatives in the provinces, and who could call upon a small fighting band of their own followers. And I do mean small here, low to mid-single digits, usually. Gokenin were, in essence, vassals, formalized for the first time under the control of the shogunate, where in the past those ties of loyalty had been more personal and based on the individual charisma of a ruler. Now those bonds were more formalized, tracked by a sort of contract between Gokenin and the local representative of the shogunate. Under the Kamakura shogunate, Gokenin's status was for the first time actually recorded. Gokenin had to register with the local shugo, to be fully recognized in their status. This was the start of an actually organized feudal army. Shugo were mobilized by the shogun in a crisis, who would then mobilize the local Gokenin, who gathered up their followers to assemble an armed force. 
Takezaki's ancestors had presumably pledged themselves as Gokenin 80 years earlier, during the earliest days of the Shogunate, in exchange for which they were confirmed by the local Shugo Daimyo, with control of their ancestral residence in Higo, and perhaps some lands nearby. How much land is very unclear, but Gokenin grants were never exactly vast. The chief payment for Gokenin in these early years, however, was not land rights, but rewards for prowess in battle. Samurai of the medieval era were still funded primarily by plunder, which would be handed out in turn to warriors on the winning side based on treasure from the defeated, as determined by both a warrior's individual contribution as well as their valor and accomplishments in the fight itself. This is why Takizaki took great care to track what he did in the fighting against the Mongols, with said notes in turn becoming the basis for the scrolls we're going to talk about themselves. And I should note before we go further that the text of the Mokol Shurai Ekotoba itself is unfortunately incomplete. The Takizaki family did not endure forever. It was wiped out in a later series of civil wars in the 1300s, the wars of the northern and southern courts if you know the time period. At the end of the Takizaki family, the scrolls ended up in the hands of another nearby warrior family who would neglect them until the 1700s, when the texts were then rediscovered. Missing images or illustrations were still being recovered by the early 1800s, and as a result of about four centuries of neglect, chunks of the text are still missing or damaged, complicating the reconstruction of Takizaki's life even further. But what do the scrolls actually tell us? Well, they begin in media res, so to speak, in 1274. A Mongol war fleet, composed at this point mostly of conscripts from other ethnic groups, particularly Koreans given how far the empire has expanded, and the fact that the Mongols themselves were not exactly renowned seafarers, has arrived in Japan. That fleet has already, by the time the scroll starts, overrun Tsushima, in the middle of the straits separating Korea and Japan, as well as Iki Island off the coast of Kyushu. Now, Mongol forces have landed outside Hakata, now Fukuoka, the nerve center of the shogunal government in Kyushu. The narrative describes Takizaki himself as almost chomping at the bit for a fight, and given the importance of demonstrating courage for his own standing as a warrior, you can see why he might be. The narrative opens with word coming to Higo of the Izoku, literally barbarian bandits, in other words the Mongols, appearing off the coast. Takizaki and his fellow Higo warriors, marshalling themselves for a fight, and swapping around their helmets so they can recognize each other in a fight, and attest to each other's valorous deeds, then encounter one of the commanders of the Japanese defenses, Shoni Kageske. When they meet Shoni, Takizaki and four of his followers from Higo who have accompanied him are told to dismount. The Japanese forces are going to set up in a fortified position and ambush the Mongols with arrows. Takizaki, however, will not have it. Quote, we five horsemen are going to fight beside you. We won't limit ourselves to merely shooting down the enemy. I have no purpose in my life but to advance and have my deeds known. I want my deeds to be known to his lordship, which would be Shoni Kageske. This obsession with being seen as a warrior repeats throughout the text. Literally the next moment of narration describes Takizaki on his way to the battle. He passes by one of the major shrines of the region, Sumiyoshi Shrine in Hakata, 
and there encounters another warrior returning from battle with the severed heads of his Mongol foes. His response to seeing a warrior who is so brave, his words, is to redouble his own efforts to go on the attack. Unfortunately, Takazaki was late for the fight. By the time he arrived on the scene, the Mongols had already attempted their initial landing at Hakata Bay in northwestern Kyushu and been driven into retreat. Their forces had gone westward to the area of Torikai Beach to the west of the city of Hakata. Still, Takazaki was in time to take part in the next battle and have a chance to win himself some glory. Thus comes the first battle scene, and here I'll quote from the narration. Quote, The invaders established their camp at Sohara and planted many battle flags. Shouting a battle cry, I charged. As I was about to attack, my retainer Sukemitsu said, More of our men are coming. Wait for reinforcements, get a witness, and then attack. I replied, The way of the bow and arrow is to do what is worthy of reward. Charge! The invaders set off from Sohara and arrived at the Salt House Pines of Tordikai Beach. There we fought. My bannerman was first. His horse was shot and he was brought down. I, Suenaga, and my other three retainers were wounded. Just after, my horse was shot and I was thrown off. Shiroishi Rokuro Michiyasu, a Gokenin of Hizen province, attacked with a formidable squad of horsemen, and the Mongols retreated to Sohara. Michiyasu charged into the enemy, for his horse was unscathed. I would have died had it not been for him. Against all odds, Michiyasu survived as well, and so we agreed to be a witness for the other. Also, a Gokenin of Chikugo province, Mitsumoto Matajiro, was shot through his neck bone with Nero. I stood as witness for him. There's a lot of talk here about witnessing, and you might be wondering what that means in this context. It has to do with tracking battlefield accomplishments for specific samurai, because remember, that's a big part of their pay, so to speak. A witness attested to things like your bravery in battle, whether you were among the vanguard in the attack, how many enemies you killed, especially if you hadn't managed to take any heads, the common method of measuring your accomplishments. The more witnesses you could offer, and the more credible those witnesses were considered to be, the better it was in terms of your ability to make a case for compensation. Now, as valuable, if not more so, than Suenaga's written account of the battle are the illustrated depictions that accompany it. Because remember, this is an ekotoba, an illustrated text, not just a written account. The illustrated scroll itself is dated to 1293 originally, so a bit over a decade after the second and final Mongol invasion of Japan, and well within living memory. Because of that, it's an invaluable source for knowing what the invasion looked like, so to speak. For example, the illustrations provide a lavish account of how the samurai comported themselves. They are, for example, how we know that Takizaki's commander, Shoni Kageske, had a saddle with a tiger skin pattern on it, presumably intended to show off his great personal valor and high status. There are also several images of Mongol soldiers, primarily infantry, giving an excellent source on the design of the weapons and armor they used. I'll include a couple of images in the show notes, and there's also a scan of the scrolls with some great explanations online that I will provide a link to. Anyway, after the battle, the scrolls then conveniently jump to the aftermath of the departure of the Mongols, 
a lacuna perhaps best explained by the fact that the actual battle on Torikai Beach was a defeat for the Japanese. The Mongols waited until the Japanese forces moved into a position to attack, then struck first while the Japanese were getting themselves organized. The Japanese forces were routed and retreated 10 miles southeast to fortified positions, allowing the Mongols to range over Hakata and the surrounding areas to loot. Shoni Kageske counted on, correctly, the fact that his forces were still together even if they had been defeated. The Mongols, tired and bloodied, would eventually decide to pull back onto their ships once it became clear they had not won decisively and would have to fight again if they wanted to stay. If they just hung around, they risked more Japanese reinforcements showing up, and so the Mongols retreated to their ships and what came next, of course, was a typhoon, the Kamikaze, that swept the invasion away. Takazaki's account, however, doesn't mention any of that. It skips directly from the account of the battle, in late fall of 1274, to the sixth lunar month of 1275, the late summer. Takazaki has survived being shot off his horse, but despite that stroke of good fortune, he is not what you would call happy. You see, in the aftermath of the victory, the local authorities of the shogunate in Kyushu had begun to parcel out rewards, the common practice of the time because, remember, a big chunk of how warriors were compensated was for their accomplishments in victorious battle. Takazaki, in the end, had not done well out of that process. After the battle, the local Shugo Daimyo would write letters back to Kamakura documenting the bravery, or lack thereof, of their Gokenin based on the available witnesses and other evidence. Rewards were then distributed by the shogunate back in Kamakura based on the reports. However, there were a lot of reports and not a lot of rewards, because remember, there was no plundered land to take from the Mongols, and given the whole sunken fleet thing, not much treasure to distribute. And so the returns from these petitions were not what a lot of warriors, including Takizaki, had wanted. Takizaki's response to this disappointing turn of events was to simply go to Kamakura himself, and try and rectify the situation by pleading his case with the shogun's officials. Having decided on that course of action, he left early in the sixth lunar month of 1275 to begin his journey, which would take two months to complete. That call turned out to be smart. Just a few months later, the Kamakura shogunate would issue new orders assigning Kyushu's Gokenin to build fortifications in preparation for another invasion, and preventing any of them from leaving the area to go request more rewards in person. This is getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but the whole thing was such a damn mess that in the aftermath of the second invasion, the shogunate would attempt to head off the issue of all of its warriors ditching Kyushu to go argue for more pay by setting up a sort of local court in Kyushu itself to hear petitions on the subject. Anyway, none of this applied to Takizaki, who was able to make his way east to Kamakura. And I don't want to make it seem like what he did was somehow the obvious choice. He was taking an enormous risk by doing this, particularly because, since his petition to the shogunate was not part of his official duties, he had to self-fund it and was not exactly rolling in cash. Indeed, he had to sell his own horse and saddle to cover the travel expenses, and given that samurai were mounted warriors at this time, that meant he was taking a big risk. If his plea was not accepted, he would literally not be able to do his job in the future. 
However, once Takazaki got to Kamakura in the fall of 1275, he quickly ran into a different problem. Given his low status and his small entourage, just two footmen whose names were only given as Yasaburo and Matajiro, nobody actually wanted to meet with him. Eventually, he was able to secure a meeting. Takazaki claimed it was due to divine intervention after praying at Kamakura's main Shinto shrine, Tsurugaoka Hachimangu, but more likely it was because he just refused to stop annoying the Kamakura leadership until somebody, anybody, would talk to him. Specifically, after a great deal of annoying prodding of shogunal leadership, he got there on the 12th day of the 8th lunar month and this took until the 3rd day of the 10th lunar month, he was able to secure a sit-down with Adachi Yasumori. Yasumori was technically his boss, the Shugo of Higo province, appointed sometime between 1272 and 1274. However, like most Shugo, he didn't want to go to some far-off backwater like Higo, far from the center of power and culture. Instead, he stayed in Kamakura and relied on Jito, stewards out in the provinces, to manage things on his behalf. The fact that he was both fairly new as a Shugo and had been given a low-ranking province like Higo also probably helps explain why Adachi was willing to sit down with someone like Takazaki. Adachi, in turn, is central to Takazaki's narrative. Initially, he is hesitant to offer more rewards to Takazaki, noting that Takazaki has not taken the heads of any famous Mongols, and accomplished little more in terms of concrete action than losing a horse and getting himself injured. Why, he asked, should anyone be rewarded for that? Takazaki countered that he had several witnesses to his own valor to supplement his report, and eventually badgered Adachi in a very respectful way into agreeing both to forward a recommendation he be rewarded and to pass on word of his deeds up to the Shogun. Considering that the scrolls are depicting an event from several decades prior here and the fact that this is something Takazaki commissioned, and therefore he'd want the story to paint him in a good light, we should view the recollection of this conversation with a bit of skepticism. I'm not sure I totally believe, for example, that Takazaki demonstrated incredible sincerity by volunteering himself for beheading if reports of his actions were found to be untrue. But in broad strokes, it's pretty believable that Takazaki was willing to go to substantial lengths to secure recognition for himself. After all, it was literally his livelihood at stake. Or, to use the florid language of the text, quote, other than advancing and having my deeds known, I have nothing else to live for. Though the scrolls Takazaki commissioned are justifiably far more famous for their visual depiction of the fight against the Mongols, this is by far the most detailed part of the entire account in terms of text. A lot of attention is paid to the verbal back and forth between these two men, far more than the descriptions of the battles against the Mongols. It's not hard to see why, because this audience proved to be the turning point of Takazaki's life. The very next day, Takazaki heard from a friend in Kamakura that Adachi had been telling his own retainers about, quote, a warrior of unusual strength of will, and had recommended he receive more rewards for his service. It apparently took about a month to kick that request up the chain, but on the first day of the 11th lunar month, Takazaki was summoned back and handed an edict confirming some new land rewards for himself. 
Specifically, he was given a role as Jito, or steward, of Kaito District in what's now Kumamoto. He was also gifted a chestnut horse with a new saddle, ensuring that in the future he could return to the front lines. The account then skips ahead to 1281, when the forces of Kublai Khan made another go of an invasion of Japan. Once again, the Mongol plan was to advance on Tsushima and the other outlying islands of Kyushu, and to drive straight for Hakata to take out the shogunate's headquarters on the island. This time, however, they'd be able to do so with a far larger army. Numbers given from contemporary accounts should not be trusted. The official history of the Yuan dynasty says the Mongol army was over 100,000 strong, while a Kamakura-era source has 150,000. Thomas Conlin, in his modern-day writing on the subject, gives a far more reasonable estimate of around 10,000 Mongols against a few thousand Japanese defenders. It seems reasonable that the second invasion was larger than the first, because by this point Kublai Khan had finished off his other major geopolitical rival in the form of the remnants of the old Song dynasty of China. Thus he could direct a far larger force against Japan. However, the Japanese had also now had seven years to prepare for another invasion, and Hakata was fortified with substantial stone walls, not to mention battle-hardened veterans of the first go-round. This time the Mongols would not even make it onto Kyushu proper. Their advance would stall on the outlying islands, while Hakata itself remained unscathed. Instead, the fighting was primarily at sea, with Japanese forces on boats skirmishing against the Mongols and attempting to harass their ships docked in the harbors of those conquered outlying islands. Once again, Takazaki's narrative in the scroll just picks up right in the middle of things, jumping directly from the conclusion of his meeting with Adachi to him on his way to fight in 1281. In the interests of time, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, both because it's pretty similar to the first battle scene, and because, at least to me, the most interesting bits are pretty easy to sum up. Simply put, Takazaki is once again almost suicidally brave in his pursuit of glory, even going so far as to lie to other samurai about his orders in order to get a spot on a boat headed for the front lines. However, this doesn't really count against him, Indeed, it so impresses one of his colleagues that he refers to Takazaki as Dai Moaku no Hito, a phrase Thomas Conlin translates as the baddest man around, which now really makes me want a Photoshop of the scrolls, but with Takazaki's helmet stamped with Banff, but anyway, I digress. Anyway, the text ends with a final recollecting of the battle and Takazaki's involvement with it. Once again, there's no mention of the role of a typhoon in wiping out the Mongol fleet, just as had happened in 1274, but that's not too unusual. After all, the role of the whole narrative is to recount Takazaki's accomplishments, and the role of Mother Nature in the battle is not a part of that story. Instead, there's one final section once again praising Adachi Yasumori, and an ending recollection where Takazaki credits his enormous good fortune in life to the intervention of the deity of Kosa Shrine in Kumamoto, Kosa Myojin, whose shrine is in the Kaito fief Takazaki served as the steward of. After this point, our knowledge of Takazaki becomes very thin. By the time the scrolls themselves were commissioned in 1293, he'd set up a family temple for himself, Tofukuji, which is still in Kumamoto, and become a lay monk, 
having taken the Buddhist name of Hoki, roughly rejoicing in the Dharma. He was still alive by 1324 because we have an edict from him announcing new donations to support Kosa Shrine, but after that point, his fate is not known. So what can we make of this story, which on the one hand is a fascinating tale of one man's experience during one of the most momentous events in medieval Japanese history, but on the other hand essentially represents a guy in a bureaucratic battle over his pay stubs? Well, there are a few things we can take from the story. Takizaki, for one, has become something of an interesting figure in his own right because of the window his story provides us into the lives of Gokenin, not usually the primary focus of period documents focused more on the upper levels of the samurai class. Takizaki himself would later become something of a nationalist symbol during the imperial era in Japan. A monument erected on what's supposedly his gravesite in the early 20th century has calligraphy from one of the great war heroes of Imperial Japan, Togo Heihachiro, of a quotation from the text about Takazaki's devotion to the way of the warrior. The government even opened a Takazaki shrine in the 1930s as a way of promoting its militaristic ambitions, but the shrine was never very popular, fell apart in the 60s, and was never repaired. More recently, Takazaki still figures into depictions of the era. From what I can gather, his last on-screen appearance was in 2001 in one of NHK's historical taiga dramas about the Mongol invasions. More important, however, than Takazaki himself, at least in my view, is what he left behind. The Moko Shurai Ekotoba scrolls are an incredible source of information about war and samurai culture in the 1200s, though there have been changes to the scrolls over time, as they were copied and recopied, and reconstructing the originals can be a challenge. Still, the images on the scrolls contain everything from the shape of Japanese defenses against the Mongols to the kind of weapons both sides used, to what an audience with a senior member of the shogunate's leadership looked like, and those are invaluable to historians. Indeed, the English translation of the scrolls is central to Thomas Conlin's famous essay, where he advances a crucial argument about our understanding of medieval Japan. He argues that Japan's victory against the Mongols was not, in fact, a matter of luck or divine providence in the form of typhoon winds, which swept the Mongol fleets away. And I think that is still the most common story, that's certainly the one I got, that the victory of the Kamakura shogunate over the Mongols was a matter of luck. Conlin says that's wrong. Scrolls like the one Takazaki left behind show the sophistication of Japanese warriors and the quality of their tactics and training. They were, to use the title of his essay, in little need of divine intervention, to win the day. Takazaki wanted his deeds to live forever, and in a certain sense, they have. His accomplishments and his decisions to record them have provided us with an invaluable window into a crucial moment in Japanese history. I imagine he would take some pride in that. His deeds are known, and his name does in fact live on. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. This show is a part of the Facing Backward podcast network. You can find out more about this show and our other shows at facingbackward.com. You can support the network at patreon.com facingbackward. Special thanks to those who have given at our shout-out tier, Jan Leonard, Stephen Elkins, Martin Oliveira, Clark Canning, Ian Kellett, Matt Haynes, Jackie Frostocker, Monkey Sack, 
Alayla McCulloch, Karen Murphy, Peter Wales, Robert Prine, William Arno, Jonas Brandis, Nicholas Kroll, Jerry Spinrad, Jared Stevens, Jeffrey Dwork, Stefan Hrushka, Joshua Kane, Robbie and Cat, Jacob Key, Aaron Finkbeiner, A House Is a Perfectly Cromulent Mascot, and The Fish I Catch are Rhodes Scholars compared to Samuel Alito, Schmuck. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we tackle the history of a uniquely Japanese form of storytelling, Rakugo. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com/audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com/audio. That's carshield.com/audio. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.